Good morning. I know that you have been greeted and welcomed by professionals this morning. Uh, I'll say it publicly how much I appreciate and how thankful we are, grateful we are to our greeters who are here every single Sunday early in the morning and do such a great job of just kind of greeting us with a smile and the joy of the Lord. So uh, appreciate that. Um, last Sunday, I gave you, I guess, a challenge, for lack of a better word, to think about some ways that you personally and practically could strengthen the unity of this church. And I hope that you've been thinking about that, praying about that. I hope that you've implemented some things that we talked about last week, about strengthening the unity of the church, this church. We have been in this series, The Church Through the Lens of Jesus. We're going to wrap it up this morning, this particular series. But to kind of set up my thoughts this morning, I want you to consider the fact that there are some things that just don't seem like they should go together. People put them together, but it doesn't seem like they should go together. Pineapple and pizza should not go together. My wife orders it that way. She's wrong. It doesn't go together. Anybody that's ever worked with teenagers will tell you big gulps and road trips do not go together. Billy, where's Billy? Am I right? Yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah, don't do that. You, know? uh, you can buy macaroni and cheese ice cream, but you shouldn't. Just because you can doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. It doesn't seem like those should go together. I'll give you something else that, that a lot of people say doesn't go together. Exciting and church. There's a lot of people, there's some people who go to church, that will tell you, yeah, I wouldn't use those two words in the same sentence. Exciting and church. A mother sits down with her little girl right before church starts and she leans over to her daughter and says, now remember, we have to stay quiet in church. The little girl goes, I know, Mom, and I know why, too. The mother asks, well, you tell me why. The little girl said, because people are sleeping. <laughs> For a lot of people, exciting in church don't go together. And listen, I get it, okay? We all get it. We all have had experiences with church and in church that we would say, you know, I, I wouldn't classify that as being exciting. But the church through the lens of Jesus, that's an exciting church. And I don't want to wrap up a series on the church and miss an opportunity to go back to Acts chapter 2 this morning. And I don't want to miss an opportunity to spend a little bit of time in chapter 2, verse 42. I want to remind us of our, uh, kind of our uh, uh, logo, our theme, our, 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 our vision at Bay Area, that we want to be an Acts 2.42 church, and remind us of how exciting that should be and can be. But first, I'll give you a little bit of context. Um, Acts chapter 2, some really important things take place. Some 
history-altering things take place in Acts chapter 2. First, the Holy Spirit shows up in a powerful way. Holy Spirit is poured out on the apostles in Acts chapter 2. Next, a crowd gathers, a large crowd, chapter 2, verse 6. A large international crowd gathers around Peter and the other apostles. And this large international crowd begins hearing the message of the apostles in their native tongue because of the power of the Holy Spirit. And while this international crowd is gathered, Peter, along with the other 11, stand up and begin, for lack of a better term, preaching. They begin teaching. In fact, we generally refer to Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2 as the very first gospel sermon because Peter stands up and he talks about Jesus. And he talks about the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. And he talks about the fact that, that the people that are listening can actually have their sins forgiven that they can repent of their sins, they can be baptized into Christ, they can receive forgiveness of their sins, they can receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, they can be saved. And to just about everyone's surprise, about 3,000 people respond to that message. 3,000 people repent of their sins, are baptized into Christ, receive the forgiveness of their sins, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter preaches one sermon. 3,000 people respond. That ratio has sort of been flip-flopped in our day and time. Now it takes about 3,000 sermons for one person <laughs> to respond. But Peter stands up and preaches one sermon, 3,000 people respond. Uh, very exciting. So, what happens next? Now we're ready to read. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes, ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those that were being saved. Now we're going to spend a little bit of time in verse 42, the beginning of that paragraph, but I don't want you to blow past the very last sentence in that paragraph. The Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. That that fire that was first ignited by Peter didn't go out. In fact, it spread all through Jerusalem. And I would argue that the real evangelist in this story is the Holy Spirit. It's God who's adding to their number daily. And it's a little bit interesting, and I think it's a little bit telling, at the beginning of Acts chapter 2, you see God using the testimony of Peter to uh, reach 3,000 people. By the time you get to the end of Acts chapter 2, you see the Lord using the church's testimony to reach people. And there are times when God will use one individual to reach a lot of people. And there are times when God will use a lot of people to reach one individual. 
And I don't know if you've noticed it or not, but by the time you get to the end of chapter 2, nobody's mentioned by name. There's no proper names mentioned at the end of Acts chapter 2. All of those nouns and all of those pronouns, they're all plural. They devoted themselves. Everyone was filled with awe. All the believers were together, together, selling their possessions. They gave. They continued to meet. They broke bread. The Lord added to their number. No proper names. No one individual is singled out. Very first glimpse we have of this brand new church is a group of people, a group of individuals coming together to form one body with one purpose. Years later, the Apostle Paul would write to a church that met in, in Ephesus. He says, Be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. We talked about that last week, the importance of making an effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. And he goes on to say, there's one body and one Spirit. Just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So you back up to Acts chapter 2, and that's exactly what we see with this very first glimpse of the New Testament church. People coming together with one heart, one mind, one mission, one purpose, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. And what we see is it is very contagious. It is extremely uh, appealing to the people around them. And God's adding to their number daily those who are being saved. So my question this morning is, what was it about those very first believers that generated and sustained so much excitement? Because there's a lot of excitement going on in the book of Acts. What was it? What was it that caused so much excitement in and around and through the church? And I'm going to go back to an analogy that I've used all through this uh, sermon series. And I think one reason is the script. The script has been changed. And I'm not talking about the script of the Pharisees or the teachers of the law or the experts in Torah. I mean, again, everybody knew their script. They, everybody knew what they were going to say. But this new group, they're not experts in the law. They're not the teachers of Torah. They're just people. And they're people who are convinced that Jesus of Nazareth was the Son of God. And there are people who are convinced that He died on a cross. And there are people that are convinced that He died for my sins, and if I repent of those sins, if I'm baptized... I can be saved. And then these brand new believers, they actually begin writing the script of that early church. They start living like Jesus. And they start seeing their possessions through the lens of Jesus. And they start seeing their relationships through the lens of Jesus. They start seeing their priorities through the lens of Jesus. And the people in Jerusalem they see this brand new script 
And, well, they'd never seen anything like that before. So, what was the script? What was so exciting? Look back at verse 42. First, they saw a group of people who were devoted to learning. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings. Remember, in Acts chapter 2, these are Jewish people that we're talking about. And their world has been turned upside down. Uh, they have to go back, and they have to kind of process everything they know and everything they've been taught through the lens of Jesus. Because the Messiah that they'd all been waiting for for so long, he came, and they know who he was. He's Jesus. He's the carpenter's son. He's the one that not so long ago, you know, we crucified on a cross. And so now they're trying to understand Jesus. They're, they're trying to understand that the Messiah didn't come to, you know, to free them from Rome. The Messiah came to free them from their sins. And they're starting to understand, they're, they're wrestling with where do, where do we fit into this thing? And where do we fit into this thing, you know, called church? And so they devote themselves to learning. They devoted themselves to learning about Jesus because they don't want to misrepresent Jesus. They devote themselves to what the apostles had to say about living life with, living life for, walking in the steps of Jesus. They were devoted to learning. And I think sometimes that's why some people will tell you church is not very exciting. It's a lot of reading. And it's a lot of studying, memorizing, meditating, boring. Not when you're learning about Jesus. It really isn't. We live in a culture that is addicted to experiences. I think now more than ever. We are addicted to experiences. We see people on social media who kind of, you know, present themselves as adrenaline junkies. And it looks kind of cool, doesn't it? And people post on Instagram that they've quit their job. And they are just traveling the country, living out of their van. And it sounds so fun. Kind of amazing. You see people posting pictures of the pyramids of Giza, Singapore, Istanbul. I didn't even know that those were places when I was 20. I still can't find them on a map, but it looks really exciting. And there's nothing wrong with any of that. Of course not. If that's your desire, if you've got the means to do that, great. I would love to see the pyramids. You know? I don't want to live out of my van, but we all you know, like to do things that are exciting. We all like to go places and get involved with exciting things. But when it comes to our walk with God, sometimes we get addicted to, to mountaintop experiences. And all we're looking for are these sacred moments. And all we're looking for are, are these revival moments. And listen, I absolutely believe that our walk with God is experiential, okay? Um, there are times in my worship, there are times in my prayer life, my study time that I am blown away by what I'm reading and what I'm thinking. 
And there are times when I am brought to tears when I think about God's presence, His power, His love, His grace. And some of you desperately need to be open to those kind of experiences. But I'm not preaching to you right now. I'm preaching to those who are like, I've got to have that all the time. I just always got to kind of be in, you know, the, the breeze of the Spirit. I've got to have those mountain experiences. And if I'm not having those experiences, oh, it's, it's not good. But what do you do in between? What do you do in between those, those sacred moments? Because I think we're called to do more than just have these, you know, mind-blowing experiences. I believe we're called to find daily sustenance in the Word of God. We're expected to study God's Word. We're blessed when we study God's Word. It's exciting when we truly study God's Word. I heard someone say once that there's only two times in a person's life when they're not expected to feed themselves. When they're very, you know, new babies or a very old person. And in between, you got all this time where the expectation is we should be feeding ourselves. Spiritually, I think the expectation is we need to take some initiative to feed ourselves. We need to be in the Word personally. Listen, if you're, if you're counting on some Bible teacher counting on some podcasts, you know, a couple sermons to feed you spiritually, you're never going to make it. <laughs> you are going to starve to death. Paul told Timothy, Timothy, you study. You study to show yourself approved. You study so that you can correctly handle, rightly divide, the Word of God. What was the script of those very first Christians? They were devoted to learning. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Here's another narrative in that new script. They were also devoted to sharing. In church, we call that fellowship. Now, the Greek word for fellowship is one of the Greek words that most of us are familiar with, koinonia, which literally means having in common. But there's a big difference in having something in common with someone and being devoted to having something in common with someone. You understand what I'm saying? You kind of with me on that? It's a big difference between just having something in common, but then being devoted to having things in common. Myself, Keith, Reb, Chet, we all have something in common. We are all handsome men. <laughs> and we didn't do anything, did we? we, we just, we're just that way. We're just, we're just handsome guys. We didn't work at it. But there are other people that I've got to do some work. I've got to put some effort into finding common ground. Acts chapter 2. This is a group of people who are devoted to having things in common. In fact... By the time you get to verse 44, it says they had everything in common, which means they took care of each other. Two chapters later, in chapter 4, verse 34, we're told there was no needy people among them. 
That's pretty serious fellowship. That's pretty amazing. You know, to, to, to take care of people, to take care of each other on that level. They were devoted to having things in common. Which means these new relationships, they, they crossed ethnic boundaries, and they crossed racial boundaries, and they crossed socioeconomic boundaries. And last week, we spent a lot of time talking about the fact that, that people are one to Christ when they see that we are one in Christ. And that was Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17. And that became the church's script in Acts chapter 2. They were devoted to the fellowship. Another thing that made them exciting and excited, they were devoted to gathering. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. They devoted themselves to spending time together around the table. Chet talked a little bit about mysteries this morning. You know, it's a little bit of a mystery, but something happens when you sit around a table with people. Something very powerful happens. And there, there's been a lot of conversation and a lot of discussion. Is Luke here talking about breaking of bread like a common meal? Or is he talking about what we call communion, the Lord's Supper? And I think it could be both. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it appears that they partook of the Lord's Supper in the context of a larger meal. Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper in the context of the Passover meal. So I'm not going to argue. Personally, I think Luke's talking about a common meal. They just ate together. But I'm not going to argue because it doesn't change the script. When we break bread together, something powerful happens. I tell you something that you don't need me to tell you. We are increasingly living in a technological cocoon. I mean, we bounce off each other all the time. But we don't make real connections very often. That happens when we sit down and share a meal together. Do you know that the word hospitality and hospital come from the same Latin root word? And it makes sense because they achieve the same thing. Healing. When you open up your home to someone, you are sending a message to that person, you matter to me. You matter to God. This exciting church in Acts chapter 2, they broke bread together. They eat, ate in each other's homes. And then wouldn't it be kind of neat if we just sort of considered our homes as little kingdom outposts all over the county? Because isn't that what they are? Just little kingdom outposts? No. I have a little kingdom outpost just outside of Plant City. Maybe your hospitality becomes somebody's hospital. You say, well, you know, my house isn't nice enough. You're there, right? I'm not coming to see your house. I'm coming because you invited me. I want to sit down at any table with you. We want to start using our homes for God. To break bread together. And then finally, the script of this new group of Jesus followers they were devoted to prayer. 
And as you read through the rest of the book of Acts, you see this play out consistently and constantly. They were very intentional about their devotion to prayer, and they were also very spontaneous about prayer. Very next chapter, Acts chapter 3, Peter and John are on their way to the temple for the purpose of praying. They set that time aside to pray. Then the following chapter, Acts chapter 4, they're arrested, they're held before the Sanhedrin. When they're released, we're told the disciples praised God and prayed. Very spontaneous. They were devoted to prayer. They would pray intentionally. They would pray spontaneously. Prayer was just part of the rhythm of their day. It was just part of what they did, where their focus was. You know, I hear people say today, well, all we can do now is pray. <laughs> That's where we start, right? Well, we start with prayer. We'll end with prayer, too. But, but we're going to pray. And it is so encouraging when I see people in the lobby, standing in a corner praying together. People in the prayer room, just let's go pray. People in the Family Life Center, praying together. And we talk a lot about being a 242 church. We talk about being devoted to those things. Devoted to the apostles' teaching. Devoted to fellowship. Devoted to the breaking of bread. Devoted to, to prayer. But that word devoted, that's a big word. The word literally means to persist obstinately or stubbornly. To be obstinate. To be stubborn in your persistence. You ever known anybody like that? Chances are, if, if you've ever seen, witnessed a, you know, a, a top-flight athlete, that guy, that girl, they are devoted to their craft. If you've seen someone who's just a great musician, musician really, that I guess that excels in any skill, that's someone who is persisting obstinately and stubbornly toward a, a goal. When Luke says that that first century church was devoted, he's telling us they were persisting obstinately, stubbornly in learning and sharing gathering and praying. So, how'd they do it? We, we can talk about this, but how did they put it into practice? How do we put it into practice? What cultivated their devotion? And now, real quickly, give you three things that I, I think uh, caused them to be devoted. And the first was their circumstances. When these people claimed Jesus as Lord, that immediately put them in trouble with Rome. Because Rome said, only Caesar is Lord. And when they claimed that Jesus was the Messiah, that immediately put them in, in conflict with the Jews. Because the Jews said Jesus was not the Messiah. The moment they were baptized, they crossed a line. Things were going to change for them. Socially, Economically, relationally, spiritually. Things in their family were going to change. Things with their, you know, their friends at work. That was all going to change. And there were going to be some difficult circumstances ahead for those people. But you know what so often difficult circumstances do? 
We bring people together, right? When we're all going through the same thing, we can find a lot of strength in that. And you think back to 9-11. Didn't America sort of come together after that? You think about a situation in a family or a school or you know, an office where some tragedy happens, so often that group kind of rallies around each other and they find strength in that, strength in each other. This is a group of people who realize what really mattered. That Jesus really mattered. Second thing that cultivated that atmosphere of devotion, their conviction that Jesus is alive. Their conviction that the gospel is true, that God is in the world, and all things can change. And so I'm not identified by my weakness anymore. And my failures and my shortcomings, those aren't going to have the last word anymore. My mistakes. Because God's in the world, and all things can change. And I can trust God. And then finally, I think what cultivated their sense of devotion was they had a sense of shared mission. You know, the last thing that Jesus said in the book of Acts before he ascends to heaven is, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the world. Jesus' very last statement in the book of Acts is, I want you to go and tell people about me. That's your mission. That's your calling. To be a witness to me. That's, the, that's the, the statement, that's the commission that he left them with. And here's the question that I'll leave you with. And the question is not, do I have a vision for my life? The question is, does Jesus have a vision for my life? And the question isn't, does Bay Area have a vision? Does Bay Area have a mission? The question is, does Jesus' mission have Bay Area? That's our mission. Our mission is to be a witness. Our mission is to make disciples. To be devoted. And to do that, we've got to follow the same script. We've got to follow the same script that we find in Acts chapter 2, to be devoted to the apostles' teaching be devoted to fellowship, the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Wouldn't you love to be part of that exciting church? Guess what? We are. <laughs> we are a part of that exciting church. So, which of those four things are you going to work on this week? This week, starting this week. Which are you, those four things do you say, you know, I, I need to be more devoted to that? Learning, sharing, gathering, praying. Which of those are you going to be more devoted to this coming week intentionally? Which are you going to obstinately, stubbornly pursue? And as a church family, if we can help you in any way, we've got a song that we're going to use as a, a song of invitation. We'd love to talk to you here at the front of the auditorium if you come and meet us here. Let's go ahead and be standing, and we'll sing.